put all of this information in because every class we're going to have stuff to hand out. Every class we're going to be talking about things. And it would also be pretty good to take notes on some of the beers that we're going to be tasting as time goes on. We're going to try to be tasting um, classic examples as often as possible, right out of the guidelines. We can talk about the kind of shape that they're in. And I'm going to do my best when we do these to try to pick stuff on hopefully polar opposites of the uh, style guidelines. Because the one thing about the styles is that they represent a target. There's a center to that target, and there's an outside range. There's an upper range and a lower range. And people can brew to that range. And hopefully what you'll get out of tasting stuff within that range is what the balance is that accounts for the major attributes of style. Because ultimately, that's what makes a really good beer is the kind of balance that it presents. Okay? In the meantime, we're going to be going through a lot of other um, aspects here. This course is mostly geared towards uh, the exam. That's going to be the greatest amount of focus that I'm going to put into these things. We can talk about a plethora of issues. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of things, and you're going to become better brewers for it. You're going to become more knowledgeable about beer in the process. But we are very, very focused on the exam itself. So some of the issues that I'm going to be putting out here, I may not talk about some of the latest, greatest things written about enzymergy or brew your own, but be talking about more or less the very conservative standard approaches that have gone into making great beers over time. Okay? Certainly the other stuff exists, but I'm just trying to say that those are the kinds of things that are looked for on this exam. Make sense? So as long as we can separate those two conversations in our heads as we go along, we're all going to do great. And this is a gigantic class, and I'm so thrilled that you guys are all here. Really, I am. Um, there are very, very few uh, exam classes <coughs> around that get bigger than about 15. So it's, uh, it's very cool to have this going on. Um, first off, schedule. Everybody got to schedule via email, right? You guys know that the current schedule, and I'm going to be sending out kind of reminders like I did today and like I have been. Each week you're going to get, um, before the class, you're going to get kind of a little study guide, what to read in the style guidelines, auxiliary reading and how to brew, and, um, and hopefully the pages match up because I will be referencing volume two of how to brew. I see a couple of volume ones, uh, first editions of how to brew. Yeah, I'm referencing second edition. Hopefully they match yeah, up. You name the section. Yeah, basically. Um, Just name the section that it is. Yeah, it's pretty much, it's going to be very straightforward. Yeah. We're going to go through ingredients, we're going to go through, and you guys can tell by the syllabus what we're going to be going on here with the, uh, with the schedule. Does anybody need an extra copy of the schedule? Okay. Yeah, I'll take one. Yeah. Pass two back here. Okay, we'll just pass these all around the room. Go ahead and just pass them on. Not well. People that want them. I have a limited cop number, so I don't know how many people are here. We've got five, six, seven, Nineteen. Nineteen. Great man. <laughs> There's no obsession in all of this in your family, is there? <laughs> this is great. Because at one point I had 27 people on the list. Three people have said that they can't commit the time and aren't going to be part of the class. To have 19 show up is just thrilling. This is just fantastic. I'm glad for you all here. Okay. So, I need to talk a little bit about. Um, 
some of the things that are going to go on in this class. Um, the exam fee, I send off the exam fees basically about mid-September. Um, those are out of my hands at that point. You're kind of committed to that. What I can do or what we can do is if you don't want to take the November 3rd exam that I'm giving, there's one on November 24th that's going to be somewhere in the Sacramento area. And if that one doesn't work for you, there will be one in the spring in the Placerville area, perhaps another one in this area. Um, we'll work that out as we go, but we can transfer it a couple of them in advance. After about that time, it's kind of a lose it or lose it thing. Okay? Um, I can offer you guys refunds on the exam up to basically the September 12th meeting. The materials fee goes a lot faster, okay? Um, in printing and in beer purchases, um, it's pretty much all spoken for. So if you decide that you don't want this class, you've got until basically October 28th to get your exam, your exam and your class fee back, okay? After that, October. I got to keep the August. I'm sorry, August. Sorry, yeah. August 28th. August. Thank you. I almost really stepped in it there, didn't I? That's pretty much the end. Um, August 28th, um, because after that, it's probably already spent. Um, because I'm already purchasing beers for things down the line. I have I found some bone marriage parfait for the lambic section. I have found some other smoked beers, rare smoked beers. I have some other. Uh, stuff coming from England, um, you know, just already have spent based on how many people I think are going to be here. And this is just a wonderfully big class, so I have to really have my act together <laughs> to be ready for y'all. Um, tonight, when we get to the tasting portion, I have water to pass out for everybody. In the future, I urge you guys all to bring at least a pint to a liter of water during the night. It gets hot and stuffy in here, plus it's going, we're going to be tasting different beers and such, and you're going to want to um, cleanse your palate, at least with water. Um, you're going to try to bring crackers and such, or some kind of bread to also cleanse your palate. That's all part of judging. Um, uh, let's see. Okay, so, after tonight, please do bring water, because I can't afford to provide that each, each and every night. Um, Guidelines. I was going to pass out a copy of the uh, style guidelines to everybody, but the printer wasn't ready, so they're going to be ready next week. I have a limited number of copies of the style guidelines to pass out tonight, like 10 copies or so. So double up and share, and then I'll need them back if, at the end. But everybody's going to get some really nice bound copies kind of thing to use and have, and uh, it's worthwhile. For those of you guys who aren't at the table, I have a small number of um, clipboards for you guys so you can write notes. Just make sure I get those back. Okay. Um, I may as well pass out the guidelines, even though we won't refer to them until later. It'll help speed things up. So if we can kind of you've already got some, great. Um, if you don't, kind of double up and share them between people tonight. Uh, 
That way it's Okay. Somebody asked me about the test site, the actual site that we're going to be doing. I'm going to be looking around in Concord for some place that we can actually do the test because doing it here, obviously, this is not going to be conducive to two and a half hours, three hours of writing and judging here. Uh, they're going to be busy on a Saturday and, you know, stuffy and we're too cramped and that kind of thing. We need a place where we can kind of spread out and we can gather our thoughts and it's going to be quiet. So if anybody has an office, has a warehouse or something that's pretty decent for that kind of thing, be brilliant. Uh, I mean, if you know a good restaurant owner and we can get in there early, it'd be even better. Um, otherwise, I'll be looking for some place where we can do it and know there isn't any money for rent. So, um, you know, everybody can pitch in on that before. Can I cut off some tables and chairs? Okay. Huh? He has an office building. Yeah, that's true. You do have a few office buildings, don't you? Yeah, we do need tables and we do need chairs. It's though. Hmm? In the ghetto, right? Yeah. yeah, it's in the ghetto. It is? How many drive-bys a day? It's a slow boy. <laughs> and can they be scheduled so that they don't happen from, like, you know, 9 to 1? Okay. We can talk about that. That'd be great. If you do have a spot, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, we're good here. Yeah, but, you know, I don't want to impose on that. Oh, I thought your question was pointed towards me. No, not at all. It was such a good fit, huh? Yeah, it's convenient that way. Kind of convenient all the way. If you want to take it personally, great. Okay. This is a place to Everybody was absolutely great on punctuality tonight. That's going to be fantastic. There's a lot to cover at each and every meeting. Uh, so please keep up the punctuality. Um, being late once in a while, no big deal, but please, 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 it stops the flow. And if you come in in the middle of a conversation somewhere, it gets hard to kind of pick up with things. Um, so please do keep up the punctuality. Okay. So in addition to getting emails before each class, it's going to give you a study guide as to what to look for. You're going to get an email after each class, which is going to give a slight little recap, kind of a hint as to what's coming up. But it's also going to typically include some kind of quiz material. I'm going to assume that you could give you guys a couple of days to review things, to kind of think about it. And I'm going to send out some quiz material. I guarantee you that the quiz material is directly related to what you're going to see on the exam. And by filling out that quiz material with a couple of things in mind, number one, how much time it takes you to complete an answer. Number two, how much time you can think of right off the door, how many, how many things you can think of right off the top of your head. And number three, the stuff that you think you need to do to look up and review and then go back and try to rewrite that answer is going to dramatically improve your score and dramatically improve your ability to perform on this exam. A lot of time management goes into successful exams. People will spend too much time on one particular question and shortchange the others and end up either failing the exam or getting something that's at least one rank, maybe two ranks below what they deserve. So by time management and by just reviewing these things, it's going to be really cool. A couple of these, of these, especially as we get closer to the uh, time of the exam, I'm going to tell you, give you guys the option to return them to me. And we have a small little network of actual exam graders that will take your, your answer and will review it and will give feedback much the way that you will get feedback from your exam. Okay? Does that make sense? 
In other words, it's going to tell you the stuff that you overly concentrated on and the stuff that you didn't concentrate enough on. There's a, again, just like beer, there's a balance in what you're expected to do. No grader expects that you are going to know every little, or be able to write every little nuance of every little thing about what's going on because it would simply take too much time. You're generally going to have 10 to 12 minutes per question to write. Okay? And that's a lot when it comes into some of how these questions work, and I'm going to go through that here real quick. Okay. But before I get into that, I definitely would like you all to take into account, let me start that around the room. I want you guys to take a second and look at the huge number of competitions that are available in this year. There are like seven or eight different competitions between now and the end of the year still available if you want to go as far as Santa Cruz or Tulare County or something. Uh, but even one right over the bridge in San Francisco, which is very much looking for uh, judges. The competition at Stern Grove, which is the California State Competition, is always going to be looking for judges. I urge you guys, am I short? I think I only printed like 20 and I got I got a couple more. Okay. Um, there is not a single competition that will turn away judges. At least I've run across one or two, but generally four or five days before the competition they're they're begging for more people. So, you know, some people make mistakes, but basically, even as a novice, even as somebody who's not taking the exam, but you are training for it, you are invited to come and be a judge. At the very least, come be a steward. Stewards are the axles upon which competitions run. They're <coughs> extremely important to the smooth functioning of a, of a competition. Um, and this is kind of an outline of the competitions that happen through a year in our area. If you consider our area being basically Tulare County on up to Chico and Reno on out to San Francisco and, and Santa Cruz. It's a big, big area. But you can see that if you get one point per <coughs> event as a judge, you can very quickly raise up in rank in even just a year. So it's very much worth studying well and doing well on this exam and very much worth participating. Okay. All right. So, back to the BJCP itself. Hey, Kevin? Yes. Something real quick. I'm, uh, if it's cool, I'm going to record sure. uh, these sessions on MP3. And what I'll do is, in addition to his uh, email that he sends out, um, I'm going to try to send out a link that, if you want it, you can actually go to the file and keep it on your computer and whatnot. So oh, you just God. at least have uh, I can't imagine fun. anybody that wants to hear me talk on a subject twice. Well, yeah. Next day. While you're on a train or something, I've found it pretty useful to listen to this kind of stuff. Tell you why you're watching Aqua Teen. Yeah. <laughs> so. I'm not sure I want to listen to myself. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I misstate things so much. Okay. Um, all right. I will guarantee you question one on the exam. First thing that you're going to see is going to ask you what is the purpose of the BJCP and what are the ranks and requirements for judging, for being a judge. 
will guarantee you that it will look an awful lot like this page. Sort of, sort of an awful lot like this. Sort of an awful lot like this. Okay? So, the purpose of the BJCP is to promote beer literacy, the appreciation of real beer, and to recognize tasting and evaluation skills. Okay? Those are the core purposes. The functions of the BJCP are things like sanctioning competitions, tracking judge points, uh, secondarily educating judges, um, sanctioning competitions, creating guidelines, creating score sheets, creating, organizing, and judge ethics materials. Those are all functions, but the primary purpose is to promote beer literacy, promote the appreciation of real beer, and to recognize tasting and evaluation skills. Those are them. And yes, I've seen a score sheet that has come back and said to promote beer illiteracy. <laughs> Here. Hello, Gary. That must have worked. Currently. No problem. Gary. Grab a seat. Good, we have an even 20 now. You can clean up all the tables. Should we go over the punctuality part again, or should I? Uh, <laughs> it's too late for that. <laughs> Okay, I'll let you guys uh, do a little peer pressure in there. Very glad you're here. Did you come all the way from the seat? Yeah. Okay. Is this kind of like the yeah, time it's going to take you to get here most of the time? No, I actually, my, my wife's heading out of town, and so she made me this really nice dinner. And I walked in the door, and I'm like, i got to leave. She's like, <laughs> Well, it's either you or you. I'm just glad she didn't say romance. <laughs> okay. So no, that's generally on brutal. Okay. <laughs> so the yeah, That's just sort of like the sweetest version of passive-aggressive I've ever heard. Okay. Yes, you're going out. So, eat. Okay. Um, the whole purpose of this course is to help you guys achieve these three things. The whole purpose of the lesson plan that we have developed, and Dave Peckham is the primary person behind this. He's a, a master judge out of Sacramento. Um, he, he launched what he calls the No Beer Judge Left Behind program. And um, we have now spent about three years between he, he myself, and Beth Sundari creating the lesson plan that you guys are going to be following. And what we are offering here is a real chance that not many get to pass this exam with a high score. The cool thing about having a real chance that not many get is that it kind of helps you answer a question. The judge ranks are apprentice, recognized, certified, national, master, and Grandmaster. And then Grandmaster Plus. The Grandmaster Plus? 
They've had a few Grandmaster flashes, but you know they don't last long. Um, and that should fill in the blanks on there. Okay. In the study guide, it will talk about the ranks and requirements. Please look those up. The GMSR, the service requirement, Grandmaster service requirement in there, is just that. The only ranks that have any service requirement to the BJCP is to achieve Grandmaster and Grandmaster Plus. Everything else, circle no. So I'll leave it to you guys to look up the um, the scores and point requirements from the study guide. All right. But if you can remember that we have a real chance that not many get, you'll have all of the uh, the ranks in order. Okay. Easy enough. Easy enough. So that's our kind of, that's a, an overview of your question one. Here's how the program is going to work. Here's how everything is going to fit together. The exam format is a 10 question format, of which eight of these questions are essays. You're looking at question 1A. 1B will be 15 true false questions on ethics and procedures in the, uh, in the BJCP for judges and for organizers. And tonight, I'm going to pass out the Judge Procedures Manual. Judge Procedures Manual, you will find is helpful. It kind of gives you an overview as to what your responsibilities are as a judge, uh, kind of what to expect, who does what, why, all of that kind of thing. You'll find this very, very helpful for answering the ethics questions. And we'll have some practice quizzes on the ethics questions. We need a couple more. Do we need a couple more? Do we need one Here, more? I got one. I got my own copy. Okay. Here, here's one more. There you go. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I counted on 20, and I think I'm not with 21. Huh? Okay. Um, so, question one is going to be the purpose, ethics, and judges. Okay. Question number two, or the second question on there, is going to be a question on styles, and it's going to ask you to compare and contrast three different styles. Oftentimes, these are a family of beers, such as Pilsner Cousins, Pilsner Cousins of, say, Cream Ale, Kolsch, and Munich House. Um, otherwise, it may be a stout family or a dark ale family, such as porter, sweet stout, and American <coughs> stout. So it's always going to be compare and contrast of three styles. 
The next question is going to be a recipe question. And the recipe question is a technical question. It is not necessarily a style question, although you will be asked to design a recipe to a particular style. And we'll talk about that in the recipe module. Uh, but it's mostly about proper use of ingredients and proper procedures, or classic procedures to that style. Okay. Um, the next one is going to be another style comparison. Except that you're not actually going to have to compare, you're not going to have to contrast the styles, but it's going to be with a theme such as name three beers that require 25% or more of the grist. Or name three top fermenting beers that start with a gravity of 1070 or higher. Okay? You'll find these in the study guide. Will be in there. But there's a theme, and it will be three different beers. Your fifth question is going to be a troubleshooting question. It's going to give you three characteristics of beer, and it's going to ask you how a brewer controls them, if they're appropriate in any style. Uh, okay. Question six is going to be another style description. Going to name, it's going to ask you for three beers. They're going to seem to not necessarily be related. In some cases, they are actually not related. But you're going to uh, compare them anyway, compare and contrast them. You need to describe them. And oftentimes, the, they will be linked by the merest, the thinnest thread, such as alcohol content or color. Okay, or carbonation level. <clears throat> the thinnest thread compa uh, compares these kinds of beers. Um, the next question is going to be a technical control question. One of the most often asks how a brewer achieves the proper head retention for style, proper diacetyl level for style, and proper carbonation for style, or proper body for style. Uh, you know, some styles, the appropriate may be none, such as diacetyl. <laughs> so you'll need to know about technical control to talk about that. The next question, and this is one that gets people a lot. It's one place where people can make or break a particular rank. Is the geography question. And luckily, in many cases, the name of the city given <coughs> happens to be in the name of the beer. You'll be there one possible question is Newcastle. Or Vienna. Cool. Or Cole. Dortmund. Okay? Dortmund. Yeah, no. Cole is not Dortmund. 
Dort Dortmund. Dortmund. Uh, I don't think Dortmund is on the list, but it might be. Um, San Francisco. You'd be surprised at how many people say IPN. Uh, anybody know the question? Know the answer to that one? Ankerstein <laughs> is, is a classic example, but it's not the name of the style. California Common. California Common, exactly. Zen um, Valley. That one, which I will, I'll tell you right now that there's at least a 50% chance that Sun Valley will be on your exam. Would it be cream ale? Sun Valley would not be cream ale. Sun Valley would be the home of Lambic beers. S-E-N-N-E. Sun Valley. Bamberg may or may not be on this. Rush beer. Rush beer, exactly. So, and you will find those cities again in the uh, in the study guide. This is one important thing about the exam is, is that even though it's tough, it's a very it's an easy test to pass. It's a hard test to make rank, meaning it's hard to get above a seventy, and gets incrementally harder to get up the list. The average for the last several years for uh, passing has been anywhere from 64 to 68 as a score. Okay, so to get in the 70s is a good accomplishment. To get into the 80s is worth celebrating. To get into the 90s is worth, you know, slapping somebody over. It's a good thing. It's uh, really cool, um, but it is a very easy test to pass. Graders will work very hard to find ways to pass you. Um, they don't really want to fail anybody. Okay. Um, question number nine will be an ingredient question. Malt, hops, water, and yeast. Those will be the ingredients that can be asked about in various permutations. And number ten is a relatively recent change to the exam. Instead of another style comparison question, they are going to give you a score sheet with parts X'd out that you don't have to answer. And it is now referred to as the classic example score sheet. Um, what you are to do is you are no longer, as you would in a style comparison, you are not going to mention the range. Could be low to high, multi, could have Munich, could not have Munich. You're going to basically act as if you are tasting that classic example, the beers in front of you at that time. And this beer is full of Munich malt. This beer is, has, you know, does have noble hop aroma. This beer does have, you know, name it as you would if you were actually evaluating and tasting that beer. Okay? You don't have to name the actual example, but you should name it as if you were tasting something and how it all balances together. So with that, let me tell you one of the most important keys to passing this exam, something you should pay attention to with every single uh, style that we talk about and everything that we are working on here. And that is, is that 60% of your answer, 60% of your score, 
is going to be weighted towards aroma, flavor, mouthfeel, and appearance. 10% of your score is going to be naming a classic example. 10% of, yeah, 10% of your score is going to be naming some kind of key ingredient or process. Sixty percent is what you see on that score sheet: aroma, flavor, mouthfeel, and appearance. When you get your exam, since most of you are taking the full exam, you will be given some score sheets that don't have what's there on the uh, left-hand side, the uh, off-flavor descriptors, but basically all of those lines. If you keep that nearby, it's a great strategy to use to. Uh, to kind of jog your memories to what you should be looking for. And a complete answer addresses all of the little items in the fine print underneath each one of the categories. It's my impression this is going to be close, but... It is. But there's your help, there's your cheat sheet. Because you will be given a... Um, what you'll be given is a, is a score sheet that basically will, give, will do two examples at once. The, the exam is the, ten, is the 10 questions, plus you will be having to evaluate four beers during, this, uh, during the uh, exam. Okay? And you'll have to write those up as a score. Again, time management plays into this. So you write those things up, and we will be practicing writing score sheets so that you get a little more fluid at them. Um, and we'll be talking about descriptors as we go. So... There's your basic exam overview, and those are the goals that we're going to be looking at for this course. Yes? Do you have another one of those score sheets? Uh, right here, right here. We should have plenty of it to go around. And yes, I do have lots more. Um, okay, so hopefully that will help. Look at the intangible section, too, because that will also show up on the uh, exam score sheet. Okay, the little intangible box at the bottom. On the exam, it'll actually be up at the top, but um, that intangibles is kind of your way to give a little extra communication to the brewer as to your impression of this beer in terms of where it kind of lies in the world. And you can have a beer that's wonderful and you'll love it, but it doesn't fit style, so it's a way of kind of communicating that they made a good beer, they just didn't hit the target. Okay? So we will always be talking about these beers, hopefully, in terms of aroma, flavor, mouthfeel, and appearance. Right? As we go, we taste, as we talk about styles, etc. Okay? In the recipe question, you'll be asked, how does your recipe fit style? You should name how your ingredients in your process contribute to aroma, flavor, mouthfeel, and appearance. Okay? Because after all, that describes the beer. Everybody got that? Ready to move on to the topic at hand? Hops? <coughs> Any questions so far on that? I hope that didn't seem too intense. Or, and it certainly should not be intimidating. Um, I just want you guys to know that this is what we're really focusing on. 
is, is a part of the strategies of success. And like I said, it's not a hard test to pass. Very easy test to pass. Um, I got a question. Yes. Will this beer score sheet actually be in the test itself? Or You'll be given two sheets like that that will say exam beer one, exam beer two, exam beer three, exam beer four. But they will have all of those little descriptors underneath major headings. Okay? One of the one of the technical control questions that comes up is, what are body and mouthfeel? And how does the brewer control them? Well, mouthfeel is a major category. Mouthfeel contains the components of body, carbonation, astringency, creaminess, warmth. All things that you will find listed under mouthfeel. Body is the viscosity of the beer. The feeling of that, right? But mouthfeel comprises all of the components that go into that. So, it, you know, you're given at least, you're given quite a bit of help by reading that score sheet. All right. I'm pretty sure Some of their vine out there. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, they are vine. Got you right handed there. Uh huh. So, actually, I asked permission. So oh, did um, It's a member of the cannabis family. Uh, it's also in the mulberry family, and yes, it is related to bad cannabis. 
Uh, and people do try to put that into beer. Unfortunately, the psychoactive components of marijuana tend to be oil-soluble and don't really quite make it into beer. They can be broken down by alcohol if given enough time. But it makes for an mm -hmm. awfully expensive dry hop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 yeah, I can tell no, who knows how much it costs. By, by the smattering of laughter as it comes around. Since this stuff is like right now like two to three hundred dollars an ounce. You know, it, it's I, I would rather just kind of go in there with a little extra Columbus. <laughs> because Columbus is the uh, is the hop made for the pothead because it, it, you smell it. It's just got exactly that kind of resiny quality to it to me. Um, but I have tasted cannabis beers. And, uh, you know, there's not much to them. They, you don't really get that reaction to it. Apparently it takes two or three of them. I haven't gotten that far. Uh, there's a but secret. Definitely. You at B3. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 the handshake. Yeah, exactly. Well, Don't you just have to buy from Jesse? Isn't that how <laughs> 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 I don't think so. Um. Of the four ingredients involved in beer, they are the most recently added. Um, they are, they are, uh, they're, de they're definitely the last one added to the beverage where, where we call, what we call beer. Historically, ale was defined as unhopped malt beverage that used various spices uh, to balance the sweetness of the malt. And then when hops were added, they began to call hopped um, Ales, they began to call that beer. So ale referred to unhopped beers, and um, beer was hopped beers. Today we have a definite distinction of ale and lager based along yeast lines, not based upon how much hopping is in there. Uh, we refer to the purely spiced beers as a gruet. Um, there are still a few aficionados of gruet that still gets made. The trouble is, is that it doesn't last very long. And for a long time, many beers didn't last very long. And in fact, the term mild even meant mild beers, hopped beers, that were not yet gone sour. They were mild before they were sour. And then they were harder beers. Um, additionally, hopped beers were distinguished from unhopped ales by being called bitters. And that's actually the, the deepest origin of the English bitter style, is that they denoted that they were hopped product. Hops had a preservative value. They aid in head retention. They help in kettle coagulation. They provide a rough work filter, either through the hop back and sometimes just through the screen on the bottom of the, uh, of the uh, boil pot. The first recorded harvesting was about 750 A.D. Uh, the first recorded use for beer is around 1000 A.D. They were accepted through the German lands by the uh, 1500s, and the Reinheitsgebot is the Priority Law of 1517. It adopted uh, 
hops as one of the ingredients for proper beer. You're going to be on there because it's 1516 and either Brew Can 101 or Hop Brew. Is it 1516? Okay. One of those books says that. Don't they say 1517? Okay. Go ahead. We have it written as 1517. We can change that. 1516. Trust me, if you're in there, you'll be in there. It's fine. It won't be getting dinged if you get it off by a year. The time yeah, exactly. Um, hops were actually outlawed in England for a while by Henry VIII. One of the things that hop beers allowed to have happen, and one of the reasons why it was outlawed in many places, is because of the preservative value of hops, it allowed for less alcohol. And people did not want to give up their strong beers. So much so that it's even a line in Shakespeare. Uh, so there, you would find that an awful lot of uh, brewers that were making a hop product would, would not make it as robust or as strong as their own hop counterparts, and made some people unhappy. Um, it's generally thought that hops were introduced to the British Isles by way of Holland. Um, little bit of resistance there by Henry VIII. They were widespread by the late 1600s. Definitely by the mid-1600s they were in use. Um, but by the late 1600s they were widespread and accepted as a part of beer. So they have a pretty long history even though they're the most recent ingredient. It stands to reason that Scotland with its malt-oriented beers adopted the hop uh, after the English, uh, mostly because they had to get it from the English. Uh, Scotland is a very poor area uh, for growing hops. It's wet. Hops do not like the wet. Um, and so everything they had to have was imported. And of course, that added to the cost. And at the time, England made pretty sure that its, its territories were not terribly well funded. Um, so, if you guys have read, anybody read the study guide <coughs> section by Peter Garofalo on hops? Okay. A few people did. Okay. Speaking of which, did the study guide come out any earlier than when I sent it out today? Yeah, yeah it was on a previous one. Yeah, it was on okay. yeah. well, you mentioned yeah. it. The guide well, was the first one or two. I was pretty sure that I had sent it out, and then yeah. somebody told me today that it, they had never received it. And no, they not okay. website. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, but I had never mentioned the website. So. Okay. First off, hops with the preservative value, the preservative aspect of them. Anybody understand which what it is that is preservative about hops? What gives them the preservative value? I read that. It's basically the isomerization of the hops into, into um, stable bittering compounds. Isomers themselves are the preservative aspect of hops. And it doesn't take a terribly large amount of them in order to create a preservative aspect. Generally, they're, they achieve what they need to achieve at around 15 IBUs. And then after that, it's just an additional amount of uh, bitterness for balance. But Jack, what do you know? So far? Okay. Um, calling whole hops leaf hops is a misnomer, obviously, because it's a flower. Um, you really wouldn't want to use the leaf form. There's not much in the leaf that, that's going to contribute to your beer. Um, but the flower form, or whole flower, or whole hops, is the most accurate description. Um, 
They can also be called raw hops from time to time. So, The other formats that hops can come in. Okay. So, what are some of the formats you guys can get hops in? And somebody just mentioned the two kinds of pellets. What are they? T45 and T90. Let's see if anybody besides you knows what the difference is. What's the difference between type 45 and type 90? One looks like those alfalfas and one looks like the teeny tiny ones, right? Sometimes the diameter, but it's actually the crushing method that makes the difference. And the crushing method is? Okay. Type 45s are the more common ones, and basically they are hard, hot hammered or hard hammered. And when they're hard hammered in there, it's basically just kind of a roller that's crushing them into these uh, little holes, and there's no, there's nothing going on except just that action that generates heat. Type 90 is cold. Hammered. And type 90 hops, um, the plate through which all of those hops are being passed is chilled, usually water chilled. And what that does is it tends to preserve the aromatic qualities of more delicate hops better. Uh, it's very, very hard some brewers to come across those hops. Most of the time we get the hard hammered stuff. Yeah, I checked into that because I want to try some out so the difference in them. The big boys get them, the people that have the first hop. Yeah. First, uh, One way to do that is to come up is to actually go get a hop contract. Um, you know, if you generate enough, if you, if you buy enough hop, which typically it only takes about 10 to, 10 to 20 pounds a year, and you can create a hop contract where you can actually go ahead and, and order that for a year. And when you need it, they'll ship it to you, typically in five or ten pound increments. It is becoming, just as a side note, this doesn't really apply to the exam, but it's becoming very, very important for people to, to generate hop contracts this year. Because over the last five or six years, the uh, amount of area where hops are being cultivated has dramatically dropped. Um, and the number of breweries using hops has gone up and the number of styles that are highly hopped in America have gone up. So much, though, that a brewery called Erfel, which is a Belgian brewery, utilizes 100% American hops because the Americans have been buying up all the European hops. Uh, the, there was a large hailstorm earlier this year in Germany, which wiped out a major part of Anheuser-Busch's crop. And the very next day, they were asking for spot prices on the Cascade crop. One of Anheuser-Busch's strategies for maintaining their quality 
is to use a little bit of a whole lot of different kinds of hops. And so they uh, are big into many of the Hollertau triploids that are grown in America. They're really big into buying up um, various breeds in, um, in Europe. And when those got wiped out, they were looking for a replacement here. Um, you know, they'll, they'll use something like 12 to 20 different hops in a, in a year to basically keep the IBUs and the flavor consistent from year to year. Uh, I don't know if that applies to the other major breweries, but I would not be surprised if it applies. Um, so this year, basically, what it ultimately means is that there's a there's basically a 30% difference between demand and availability. Hops are extremely susceptible to powdery mildew, which is why they don't grow in wet territories. Um, if there's a lot of rain in a territory, as there has been in Central Europe, um, powdery mildew can become a big problem. There are an awful lot of areas in Oregon and Washington that had a resurgence of hop crops. They were big in the 80s and such. A few kind of slightly wet years, and they had powdery mildew, and once it sets into an area, it's done for, for typically about two decades, because the powdery mildew will continue to, to lay dormant in the soil. Um, so we have lost a lot of hop-growing regions. Uh, even some areas like the Willamette Valley are very susceptible right now. It's very tenuous as to whether or not um, uh, those, a lot of those hop farms are just going to uh, stay around. Plus, we've kind of grown fond of an awful lot of very low-yield hops, um, and they're basically cutting those down for higher-yield clusters and brewer's gold and, and such, where they're going to get more pounds out of a, an acre of hops. So <coughs> hop availability is going to be interesting in the next couple of years. You're bringing this tear to Mike's eye now. <laughs> yeah, we need our choices. <laughs> no doubt. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if we start by seeing it um, really impact things like double IPA, yeah. stuff where, where hops are just used to the point of absurdity. Well, we can talk about that later. You said that the um, hops have a preservative effect. Is it by decreasing pH or it has some direct antimicrobial? They will decrease pH, but the antimicrobial function comes from the isomer, the isom hop isomerization, which is created during the boil, where hops are converted from an unstable bittering compound into a stable bittering compound. So that has a direct There have been studies um, by the ASBC, the American Society of Brewing Chemists, where pathogens and other um, uh, types of bacteria, typically relatively fragile bacteria, are put in there, thinking, you know, wondering if they can contribute to long-term beer storage, um, and found that it only takes about 15 IBUs for them to basically. Uh, destabilize and not, not prosper. Whether or not they die or not, I don't know, but basically they just don't prosper. Uh, fermentation, the actual act of fermentation and a little bit of the uh, alcohol will also stop pathogens, which is why no pathogens can survive in beer or wine or any other fermented beverage. Um, plenty of other things that can ruin a beer can exist in there. We all know that. 
they're generally more robust. Um, hop freshness is extraordinarily important in terms of how your beer is going to present itself at the end. Old stale hops can present a cheesiness. You'll know them when you when you open them up if you're going to get that cheesiness. They taste, they smell just like Parmesan rind. Um, they just have that really strong kind of an aroma to it. Um, they has anybody ever come across old stale hops? Sure. Okay. Leave, <laughs> leave some hops out on the uh, on the counter for the a couple of months, and they'll start to turn um, light brown. They'll lose their color. They'll become kind of a deeper mottled olive drab color instead of a nice bright green. Uh, and then they'll start to turn brown. You'll definitely smell the cheesiness right through the bag, if it's a, unless it's like an oxygen barrier bag, that kind of thing. Oxygen is another thing that can break down hop oils. They oxidize, which means that they will not convert into isomers and that the oils will not remain uh, stable in the beer, in the finished beer. They'll take on just kind of a stale character at the very least. Uh, so keeping them free of oxygen or out of oxygen, keeping them cool, out of direct sunlight, the sunlight will also break down hop oils. So they're, for what they do, they sure come off as a remarkably fragile uh, agricultural product, yes. Uh, so what what's with the aged like Haller Tower? Then are those intentionally made what? like Parmesan yeah, cheese? In, interestingly enough, yeah, aging. There is a certain amount of age which is important to hops. Hops right out of the field are 75 percent water, and they they have an awful lot of otherwise very volatile aromatic compounds which don't always taste that good for beer. If you've had like hop trip and such, they're extremely resiny, and they take on a richness to them that actually make them hard to drink after a while. At least they do for me. Maybe they don't for others. But um, the aged hop thing is the Germans enjoy having some cold aged. Now, they do pack them together, but they like having some cold aged hops. Hop union because, again, some Europeans were purchasing American hops to make up for their own lack of, of supplies. Hop Union was shipping over American-grown Mount Hoods over to some German brewers because it's, uh, it's relatively close to um, Hollertau. And they were getting shipped back. These samples were getting shipped back. They said, no, no, it has that, that American character to it. it just, we just don't like it. It's just that American character just isn't working for us. And they found that if they took them out of the cold room and let them age for about two weeks, then shipped over the, uh, the samples, they loved them. They absolutely loved them. Same bale. So basically it was a case of they were looking for something that was a little longer aged. And there's a history in Europe of gathering the hop crop and aging it in caves or aging it away and not bringing it out until the springtime because it took them that long to use up the older hop, hop crop. So they're very used to these kind of aged characters. On the extreme end of that is lambics, which are the only exception to not using fresh hops. Still in the case of they have aged hops a few months old, they still have their bright green character. They still have their bittering uh, availability. <coughs> they have not gone cheesy or anything. So they're still considered fresh. They've just been allowed to age and mellow a little bit more. Um, Lambics, on the other hand, use 
two to three year old hops sometimes. Um, typically, there's one American varietal that's not right. I think that it's Cascade. Which one? For Lambics. Anyway, there's basically any hop will do because they lose their bearing potential. They, Cascade's supposed to lose it first. Yeah. The first hops to lose that Okay. There's one American hop, and I can't remember which one it is right off the top. I'll remember it when we do the Lambic module. But um, typically, they let these things age. They just break open the bale and let them age for, for a couple of years. Because for the longest time, you know, it's not a hop-growing region up there in Belgium, and they um, had to import an awful lot of hops. So they found that making sour beers allowed them to have beers that, that aged better and worked better for them, and they controlled that. But Lambics also take on extraordinarily long boils, which tend to blow off a lot of the cheesiness. Um, there's even some question as to whether or not they're actually breaking down what are called beta acids, the harder resins in there, and that's creating some of the isomers, but it's still typically below the threshold of taste, which happens to be 10 IBUs. Um, which is why you'll find most American light lagers are right around 11, 12 IBUs, just above the threshold of taste. Uh, but it's then again, so are an awful lot of wheat beers. Um, but in the Lambic area, they are basically used just for their isomerizing um, preservative effect to the beer. A little bit of the, uh, the tannin from the leaf goes in as well as part of the balance. And then so many other things happen along the way to Lambics that it's really hard to know if they have any actual contribution to the early beer or not. Um, but they're the only exception to using fresh hops. Um, freshness is a quality description, not typically a form description, even though you can call them fresh hops, and you'll get basically whole leaf hops if you ask for them that way. But basically, Pellet hops can be just as fresh, and, and plugs can be just as fresh as whole hops. Okay. Hop types. Who can tell me the major hop types? Bearing aroma and both, okay. Those are very good categories. But in terms of looking for the proper hop for style, what we're going to talk about is nobles, continentals, and there's some crossover between these two terms, English, and American. What makes for a good bittering hop? Tend to have those. Molina, 
continental. Well, Americans tend to be in that, that range, right? At least the newer ones. The old school American hops, Cluster, Nugget, uh, Chinook, they all have very high coherent ratios. Does anybody know what the uh, objectionable percentage of cohumulum tends to be? It tends to be right around 30 to 35% depending upon the hop. At that point, the cohumulone, do you know what, the, what aspect the cohumulone adds? It's a smoothness to the bittering instead of a harsh biting. It, it adds a what? That's a smoothness to the bittering instead of a harsh biting. No, low cohumulone. That's a low cohumulone. Right. Okay, so high cohumulone has a harsh, a, a harsh biting. Right, which you note as what? It's a cloying sensation typically at the very end. It's a bitter cloying sensation. Um, so high, alpha, sometimes low. And the cohumulone, if, for those that are not keeping up with the conversation, um, cohumulone is one of the major alpha acids involved in hops. The ones that we care about are humulone, adhumulone, and cohumulone. Cumulone is the major bittering alpha acid that contributes to smoothness and contributes that kind of texture and character that we want out of it. There are beta acids. They tend to be hard resins. They tend not to break down very well in a wort, but they tend to also make very good surfactants and very good attractants to um, aiding in the clarity of the oil. They help. They can help. Actually, help with hop. Okay. Um, so we are looking for local humulone, high alpha acid, which is humulone, and adhumulone. Adhumulone is actually a minor character in there, but it does contribute to clean bitterness. So, decent ad. You don't usually see any ratings for adhumulone, but you'll get. Definitely, typically see cohumulone percentages, and almost every one of them seems to be right up at around 30 percent. With those that are below 30 percent, are far more desirable as purely bittering hops these days. Those tend to be um, the newer high alpha hops, like Columbus, um, which also goes by the name of Tomahawk and Zeus. So now you'll find the Columbuses are also being marketed as CTZs because Tomahawks and Zeus are basically Columbuses that were simply planted on another hill and given another name. Okay? They're not, they're, they have absolutely no flavor or aromatic differences in terms of taste panels. Are you saying American are high alpha and high cohumulone? They can't, low cohumulone. The old school ones like Chinook, um, American Grown Brewers Gold, uh, <coughs> Nugget, and Cluster, the ones you're going to find in some older recipes and such, that can, they tended to be right around 10 to 12% alpha acid. Those tend to be high cohumulone. They tend to have 35% or so. Okay? And that's why you, that characteristic Chinook bitterness, or characteristic Nugget bitterness, that you get in some old school... Uh, right now. 
And by old school, I'm only talking like 15 years ago. So it's not that old. But those are the ones that, that cloying bitterness there that people kind of get addicted to, too. People, some people just dig that kind of a, a, a flavor. Newer beer drinkers are getting used to the cleaner bitterness and a lot of sharpness to that bitterness, a lot of definition. And, you know, some people enjoy that, that bitterness there and can't get away from it. Okay. What else do we like about our American hops? We like aroma too, right? We have tended to blend an awful lot of hops where they have both an aggressive bitterness level and a very, very pleasant aroma. The aromatic qualities that contribute to a hop are humulene and cohumulene. They tend to pro provide that floral and that spicy kind of aroma there, and it varies by uh, the different plants as to which one, or the different species as to which one you're going to get. Okay? So humulone is bitterness. Humuline is aroma. Okay. <clears throat> Noble hops are known for what, typically? Very low alcohol. So they tend to be used as aromatics. What species comprise nobles? Very precise answer, very good answer. Um middle fruit is the old land race uh, Hollertau that is considered the actual noble of nobles, even though Hollertau in general tend to get uh, known as noble. But Hollertau Middlefruit is the most uh, prized hop in the world, actually. Um, Spaltz, definitely, and they're the most underrated noble hop. Um, Spaltz tend to provide an extremely clean bitterness, Relatively neutral aroma, slightly grassy, but not really that big. Um, I tend to find that they work really well in even American blonde ales and other kinds like that because the bitter is just so clean and so crisp and so really nice. Um, Sots. Sots are the Czechoslovakian land race. They're the classic to Bohemian Pilsner. They're the classics to, to many of the other uh, types of lagers. They're definitely an aromatic hop. They have a particular floral note, and they also have kind of a slight little wet sock note to them as well that is very pleasant in, in lagers and in pilsners and such. And then Tettinger, which tend to be the other um, German hop known for a lighter spiciness, known for a clean bittery, um, known for a very nice moderately floral but mostly spicy kind of an aroma. and um, are pretty much a good backup for Hollertown. You will find that there are other Hollertowns out there. Hirschbrucker, which is now they've dropped Hollertown from it because Hirschbrucker is a triploid of Hollertown Metafruit and Sots, I believe. Um, and it's just they were just kind of built for having more crossover qualities and create more, uh, more uh, acreage. And more yield. Um, 
but they arrive in their own. They're not classically a noble hop, but they're derived from noble hops. And if you look for the hop parentage, an awful lot of the hops we enjoy are from noble stock. Magnum hops, one of the really nice, clean, high alpha hops, are a German-grown, high alpha version of Hollertau. That's their parentage. So you will find that there's such a thing as Hollertau Magnum in German. Um, but noble hops comprise only those four varieties. There are no noble hops from England. There are no noble hops from America. Okay? So they are only Hollertau, Tettinger, Spalt, and Sons. And if we were to say the right, it would be Sonser, Spalters. Um, if you look them up in German catalogs, that's how they're written, because that's the regions that they come from. They're named after the regions where they come from. We simply call Tettinger instead of which shortened sometimes Tetne or Hollertauer in the Hollertau region. Okay? So so continental hops are typically triploids or replants of a lot of these hops. But they're also, in some cases, imports from other countries. One of the most notable is used in aroma is Styrian Goldings. Styrian Goldings basically got that name because the word golding is worth more money than where they came from, which was Fuggles. They're replanted English Fuggles in the Styrian region of Slovenia. They took on an entirely different characteristic. They've since been um, crossbred and made more disease resistant and have become something of their own, but essentially that's where they came from was basically a reason to just charge more money for them. Because Styrian funnels just didn't have the same ring. Uh, what kind of bittering hops would might, might be known for um, in the uh, continental region? Northern Brewer. Northern Brewer. The most well-traveled hop. What else? Brewer's Gold. It's a continental hop. Those two are basically bred for utilitarian use. Um, Northern Brewer came from Germany, ended up over in England. We kind of think of them as an English hop, even though they're no longer grown in England, they're back over in Germany, or they're grown in the US. Um, they're a bastard hop. They were at one time considered a noble hop, or may have come from a noble land race, because nobody really knows where they came from. They don't know if it was just some other noble hop that since died out and been cross-planted around the world, um, but it's definitely the most well-traveled. So it's considered a bastard hop. It doesn't really qualify as noble English or American, so we call it a continental. Um, what are the classic English hops? Fuggles, Kindle, Cross. Well, EKG, Fuggles. I heard Brambling Cross. That's a, good, that's a good one, but you won't find a lot of recipes that... That uh, are recipes they use. Maybe they do. But actually, there's three different goldings. There's one particular. Oh yeah. There's quite. A, there's probably 14 or 15 different types of Hollertau, and probably the same number of Irish Brothers. 
So yeah, there's a huge number. Um, but if East Kent Holdings is the classic, Fuggles is the classic. Some other Target Challenger. Yeah, from Y College. Target and Challenger. For purposes of the test, some of the newer ones, newer uh, English hops like Admiral, um, you don't have to worry about them. You don't have. You can note them, but they don't. They won't show up in your recipe question. They won't show up in um, talking about different styles. Generally, the most famous hops are what are going to show up in most of the style examples that you're going to talk about. The styles that you come across. Uh, so in the American, we're going to be talking about which varietals typical, typically. Yeah, all the C's. Cascade. Centennial. BC Golding. Um, BC Golding would work, but uh, and of course Columbus. Those are going to be the most famous ones that that we're going to talk about here. Unless you want to talk about some of the color towel replacements that are done in America, which would be Mount Hood. Liberty and Crystal. Basically, these are just retransplanted hollow uh, towels that have been crossbred with North American hops for disease resistance. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit. So now we've identified what hops are, the kinds of beers that they generally go with. Questions so far? Before I erase this. Somebody's squinting really hard. Question? Yeah, I'm trying to difference continental. Noble, kind of like talking about you know, the German area, England, English, yeah. American. Oh, Geographically. Spots. <laughs> Steering Goldings, in that they are a renamed varietal, crossbred renamed. Strissel Spalt would be a, a continental, but I don't think that there's any beer style that relies on Strissel Spalt. Um, well, yeah, the Australian hops, they tend to be grown in New Zealand, and that's things like uh, Lublin. Um, Pacific Gem, uh, Rye Ringwood, those kind of things. Those are really hard to get here. Isn't Lublin also Polish? Yeah, but they they enjoy. That's their that goes into an awful lot of their lagers down there. It's a fans point Yeah, very good. Okay. Um, 
Campero, so many other ones. There's like four major ones that they grow. They grow, they grow Cascades there. They grow um, Chinooks and Centennials and stuff because American Ales are actually very popular down there. Um, but from the examples I've been sent up, the Cascades do not have the same grapefruit aroma. They take on um, light grapefruit things, but more like orange and tangerine. They're a lot more like Amarillos than they are like Cascades. At least from the ones that have been sent to me from Australia. And my tie to Australia is that um, I was one of the graders on some of the very first BJCP exam sets that were there. And I'm kind of by, via email helping a couple of people in the uh, Melbourne area continue to develop their judges. They, were, they had zero judges three years ago. You're now up over 40 in the area. And they constantly have a giant struggle over whether or not to create their own um, beer style guidelines or to continue to use ours. And it's just a raging debate because there are certain styles in our guidelines that are useless to them, like cream ale, um, American lager, just completely useless to them. Okay. We are, we are an international organization. All right, so done, done for time, that stuff. Let's talk a little bit about some stuff, some uh, uses, methods of using, of using hops. Primarily, how do we extract what we need from hops? Oil. Oil. How else? Steam. Steam. Would that be a method you get hop something into your beer? You, that's how they make uh, a hop extract. Okay, how does a brewer get it, get it in there? Extract is one method. Don't concentrate on that too much as far as the exam is concerned, but um, let's deal with sort of the more traditional approaches to things. First, first, first word hopping. So first word hopping, yeah. Dry. Dry hop. Dry hop. Mash hopping. Mash hopping, yeah. And that's classic. Randall. <laughs> not, in, not in Santa Rosa. No Randall. <laughs> okay. Um, esoteric. However, um, these can be noted. What styles would you typically first word hop or um, mash hop? Big IPA. Every Every First of all, flavor, so something with like uh, where you want to get good hop flavor. You could replace a 20-minute So, for instance, say on a recipe question, you could perhaps add that technique to an American IPA. But it probably would not be well received in an English IPA. It probably wouldn't be well received in that style in terms of in the recipe. Um, Mash hopping, maybe in a Pilsner, but not typically. Um, they tend to be very frugal with their hops in European beers because they can be hard to come by. And uh, they cost money. So they don't tend to put extra hops in there just because they, they're playing around. At least not the uh, traditional German brewers. And certainly not the <laughs> certainly not the English. If you taste the other beers, we'll talk about some of that tonight. Um, okay, so definitely I have two classics: boiling. With boiling, what are we able to get out of boiling? 
Bitterness. Bitterness. Bitter. Depending on time. Flavor. Bitterness and flavor. Good. What else? Aroma. Yeah. And aroma. Um, how does the brewer control these? Time. Exactly. Are all time dependent? Volume. And amounts. Gravity. Warp gravity. Yeah, warp gravity is a technical uh, variation on that, but not technically. I mean, style stylistically, it's already been accounted for typically. So it's a it's a technical adjustment. We are not going to be talking about for purposes of this exam extract brewing, um, except as little asides. Extract brewers can have a hard time extracting bitterness from beers if they are doing a full uh, malt boil, which is why extract late, uh, the technique of adding the extract at the very last 15 minutes of the boil, has become so popular because the viscosity of the boil is so much lower uh, that more hop isomers can get extracted. Uh, but there's still a limit to what they can get. Yes? That's only the case if uh, you're not boiling the full volume. Correct, which is typical of extract. So if you make it, as I mentioned in there, that that's one technique that uh, extract brewers can do to extract more bitter and great, but don't make it more than a sentence. Uh, because it will show a lot of depth, but it will take away from your time from the primary purpose of answering the question about hops, which is how a brewer typically gets rid of, gets, uh, extracts what they need out of it. Um, and we're always going to be talking about full volume foils and all grain beers. Okay. Um, so. Here. Any other questions? Okay. Um, wet hopping. It's gaining a lot of um, momentum in the states. It's basically the idea of taking freshly harvested hops and within hours of the harvest having them into a beer. They are about 75% water. They will actually add volume to your beer. The water will be extracted during the brewing process. Um, they are very resinous. It takes uh, an awful lot more poundage of those hops in order to get the same bittering that you would, uh, because you, you, you have to basically add in the water that you're adding. Unless I, I think I've already mentioned it, they're about 75% water. So that's a pretty big hit in terms of volume and in terms of um, uh, vegetable matter in a boil. So do you increase the amount 75% or of the hops that you Three to four times, yes. If you want to use them all the way through. Oftentimes wet hop beers, um, at least some of the ones that I've seen home, uh, home brewers make, will typically use a regular hop for the bittering. They'll get their bittering out of it. 
and they'll use the wet hop for flavoring and aroma, basically everything for about 40 minutes on. Does that jive with what you know? Yep. Okay. But More predictable but, that way. Yeah. But what are you trying to get out of the wet hopping? You're trying to get the resinous quality. You're trying to get all of that extra oil and that extra um, flavor there that does kind of fade. Uh, you're trying to get more of the grassiness, more of the greenness out of it. Um, and that stuff does fade during the drying process a little bit. So you're just trying to capture that and it has more of a just harvested kind of a feel to it or an impression to it. Kind of an intangible quality. You really need to try some wet hop beers. I'm still exploring them myself, uh, so I haven't decided if I like them or not yet. But the, the half dozen that I've tried tend to be very good for the first pint or so, and then they just become too rich. So, at least my impression. Uh, okay. So, just to kind of recap some of the stuff, some uh, questions that are going to come up. Obviously, we talked about identifying what hops are and how the brewer gets that out of it. Some other questions will be identify and describe the noble varieties, English varieties, uh, and American varieties, or major. What they mean is the major ones. So that's why we went through that. Um, mention the effects of hop contact at 60 minutes, 30 minutes, the end of the boil in the whirlpool, or in hot back, or dry hop. And we went through that too. Basically, earlier on, you're going to get more bitterness, less aroma and flavor. Midway, you're going to kind of split the difference. Light hopping, you're going to start to get more flavor, and then on into aroma towards the end. And of course, whirlpool or dry hopping is strictly about aroma, not about hop isomers. Um, just one little, uh, another little aside. I've been reading or been asked questions about some professional brewers that talk about how their whirlpooling and such uh, is actually extracting more bitterness out of their hops. I really don't think that that's the case. I think what they're doing is that extra time of whirlpooling is creating the right amount of mechanical agitation and keeps things to remain hot so that they're just simply increasing the amount of isomerization of things that are already there. Um, if they're only doing like 60 minute boils or so, it's typically going to be that way. At about the 90 minute mark, between 90 and 120 minute mark, you're breaking down as many isomers as you're creating. So all of that 60 to 90 minute hop is just about as fully utilized as it's ever going to get. At that moment, for every one that you're creating, you're not going to get any more bitterness out of it. You're also losing some in the process. That's kind of the secret behind double IPAs. They take, double IPAs take advantage of two fundamental issues going on with hop uh, saturation. Number one, essentially the theoretical limit of hop bitterness isomers is 100 IBUs. So your, uh, your measurements of a double IPA can be at 300 IBUs, but you'll only ever get 100 IBUs at a time. But because there is so much going on in there, there's so many hop resins and there's so much humulin in there, that they actually start breaking down sooner than that 60 to 90 minute time. And so you wind up with a smoother bitterness. It's still very aggressive. But you wind up with a smoother bitterness 
and seemingly an exponential increase in the amount of flavor and aroma in there, to the point where it can build the impression of body. One of the things about late hop, about 20 minutes or so, the 20 to 10 minutes, is that it always seems to accent sweetness and body, especially with American type varietals. And I think that owes a little bit to the uh, citrus characteristic, but I don't have any science to back that up. Um, so when we go back to that thing, we're talking about extract brewing really quickly and with uh, partial volume boils. If 100 IBUs is the actual limit and they're boiling a half volume, no matter what beer they're making, as soon as they add water to it, they automatically cut their IBUs in half. Okay? So they can be shooting for, you know, 50, 60 IBUs and have that in the full volume or in the uh, partial volume, but as soon as they dilute it down, it's diluted down by the percentage. You know, the percentage of IBUs is, is reduced by the percentage of dilution. So at 50%, it's easy. You know, it just goes down by half. So pretty much an extract beer will never be much more than about 50 IBUs. All the way around. Okay? Um, What's that? Unless you're going to get full volume. Full volume one. But then again, you still have 100 IBUs for the volume. If you dilute that volume, then your IBUs will go down. Right. So yeah, that's one of the reasons to encourage extract brewers to go to full volume, go to partial mashing, that kind of thing. There's a lot of things that go along with that. Uh, okay. Any other questions? All right. Some rules of thumb. Rule of thumb calculations are the way to go on this exam. We can be extremely specific in terms of figuring out the IBUs in any given beer. The trouble is, is that they are always an approximation no matter what calculation you use. Ultimately, what matters is taste. If it's not hoppy enough, next time add a little more hop. Okay? Um, what I get out of my kettle in terms of IBUs, may translate to something I will do in terms of how many ounces I use, but if I hand you that recipe, and you follow it verbatim, and you make it on your system, the bitterness will be different. Will likely be different. Things that affect bitterness, the vigor of the boil, the actual uh, head pressure of the heat right there at the source, the amount of agitation that that boil creates, uh, convection and such, and in Believe it or not, kettle geometry. This kettle produces a different isomerization, a different hop profile than that kettle over there, with exactly the same volume. Okay, because the geometries are different. The amount of surface area, <clears throat> that kind of thing, it all it all makes a difference. So at best, it's an approximation. So if you accept that, we can go through the whole little work volume and and uh, adjusting for gravity, and yes, if you have a gravity above 1050, you're going to get a little less utilization. Try a little more hop. Not going to hurt the beer. Typically, a person cannot taste less than a 5 IBU difference. Okay, that's considered the threshold, minimum threshold of taste difference. Okay? 
What most often we're going to perceive is a difference in the texture, the cleanliness of the bitterness, and how that interacts with the residual um, gravity, sweetness, and the overall flavor, other flavors going on flavor hops. But we aren't actually going to be able to tell how many IBUs there are. It blows my mind when I get people who taste the beer and go, ah, that's 35 IBUs. Well, okay, here's a Doppelbach. Oh, that's only 10 IBUs. No, that's probably about 45 IBUs. You know, it, sweetness, you know, your, your perception of sweetness and, your, and the beer is going to make a big, big difference in how you perceive the bitterness. So, all of that to introduce you guys to the roll of four. You guys know the roll of fours? Four beers is better. Yeah, four beers is better than three. That's a good rule. Okay. Rule four, this is a thumbnail way of calculating bitterness in a beer because it does a couple of things. One, it works linearly. Two, it takes a lot of guesswork out of a lot of things. And number three, an awful lot of the graders are going to go right to it in terms of figuring out your uh, answer. Just in case you're thinking, it may take you guys about two, two and a half hours, three hours to write this thing. It takes graders eight to nine hours to grade it. So don't give the graders a lot of math because you'll get hammered on it if it's not absolutely precise. The more rule of thumb and the more dead center down the styles you can be, the better. Okay? So, rule of force takes the idea that every time you buy a packet of hops, you're going to have an alpha acid percentage rate. Now right there is one of those places where you may or may not make a mistake if you won't be so precise with your hop uh, IBUs. Because even though it may have that number, and it may have arrived at your supplier with that number, how it's been stored and how long it's been stored will create a decay in the amount of alpha acids actually available from that hop. Okay, so it may not be exactly what's on there. So if we start with that error, it's going to multiply itself down the line. So let's stick with the rule of fours here. And it says that an AAU, an alpha acid unit, is the percentile that's on there. And if we say that one ounce of hop at 1% one alpha, alpha acid is worth one AAU, we have a unit to start with. So if we have a hop okay, AAUs is the percentage of alpha acids for one ounce in a five gallon batch. That's the same as an HBU, right? Exactly the same as an HBU. Okay? In five gallons. There's synonymous. AAUs and HBUs. So, if this is what I'm going to get, then if I want to figure out the AAUs, and I've got Cascade at, say, 5%, and I've got an ounce of it that I'm going to put in for bittering, then I have 5% at one ounce equals 5 AAUs. Now, if I take the 5 and multiply it times 4, it equals IBUs. 
rule of four. It's actually like 4.5 or something, but four. It's close enough. Okay? So AAUs, the alpha acid potential, times four, equals the IBU con contribution of that hop in five gallons at 60 minutes. Yes? Uh, I was going to ask if that's... That's the bitterness. That's the maximum contribution of bitterness that a one ounce is going to give you. Okay? Easy enough? The cool thing about it is it's linear. So if I've got 20 IBUs in 60 minutes, is the maximum contribution. I have 10 IBU at 30 minutes. I have 5 IBU at 15 minutes. There are more precise mathematical calculations, but they're never going to be more than one or two ideas different. Okay. It's linear. If you take the AAUs, the alpha acid percentage of one ounce of hops, multiply times four, that's the maximum IBU potential. Basically the 60-minute addition. Okay? Or the 90-minute addition, however you want to do it. But we say 60 because it's easy. <coughs> the if you cut the time in half, then the IBU contribution is cut in half. If you cut it in quarters, then the IBU contribution is in quarters. So if you add those up, and I have an ounce at each one, I have 35 IBUs over a 60-minute period of time for some beer. Okay? I've got a 60-minute, a 30-minute, and a 15-minute up here, which equal 20, 10, and 5 respectively. I got 35 IBUs. Rule of fours. That help? That make things easy? So now we've gone through the beer, the um, the major types of hops, the major styles that they tend to go with. We have gone through how to get what we need out of the hops, and we have gone through some math for calculating the contributions of hops. We don't really calculate aromatic contributions. So we kind of figure that, hmm, want a lot of aroma, we're going to add a whole ounce. Don't want a lot of aroma, we're going to add a quarter ounce kind of thing. There's a, not really a good rule of thumb for the aromatic type. It's really very touchy-feely. Um, and in terms of calculating a recipe or something, it's very easy to, to uh, just kind of say, well, add a half ounce for a Pilsner, which is not going to have a lot of hop aroma versus adding an ounce and a half in a in an IPA, which needs a lot of hop aroma. Pretty simple logic. Okay? Very linear, very straight down the middle. Does that help with an understanding of hops tonight? That's it. We are there with hops. Now we can get on to the beer table. Any questions? Without getting into a ridiculous uh, description, and if you tell me to Google it, I'll accept that. But can you tell me how an isomer affects preservation in beer? I mean, an isomer to me is a compound that's been broken down into equal parts, right? It becomes more soluble in water, but I don't understand how that 
access preservative. Um, basically, it has an availability to it has an availability to basically inhibit metabolic action of certain organisms. So how it binds to the cell wall of some Proteins typically, yeah, it typically binds to protein because of that isomerization, because of that breakdown. It breaks into a piece that fits into the. Okay. It also creates. I can accept that. Oh, it's also attracted by
There's a loser. It has to be a whole other stack of stuff hanging on somewhere. I mean, I have this. It's everywhere. Doppelbach, would it be appropriate uh, there? No. Correct. 
How about um, how about Belgian Triple? No. It's a high alcohol beer. So age. It's still not in the right flavor for Belgian Triple. Correct. What are the cures for it then? Yeah, drink the beer in a timely manner. Make sure to flush your headspace. Flush your headspace or use a proper sized container so that you don't need that, you don't have that headspace. Okay, any more? Any more for me? How many more? 
or not? <laughs> we're, we're trying to. We have to the first beer coming around guys. is an example of. American Pale Ale. Clear. Oh, cool. 
Is anybody getting any hop out of the aroma? No, that 
on the full set. No. On the full set. No. Okay. Somebody was talking about fruitiness. On the what kind of fruitiness are you getting? On, on the, the full sale or the full sale? Um, we're, we're just going to talk about the full sale for a second. Oh. Great. I'd say there's a little bit of hoppiness to the full sale. As it warms, it'll probably pick up more hop aroma. I'm getting a very slight toasty malt to it. I'm getting um, a little bit of kind of a raw um, almond note to it, which is I take as a, as a, a function of the oxidation going along with that sulfur. Um, I don't think they intended raw almond is not typically part of uh, pale ales. Toasted can be. Um, I heard grapiness there. I could accept that. And um, kind of like a grape skin, a white grape skin to it. It's part um, of the astringency. No, not an astringency, just yeah, that kind finish. of aroma. Yeah. Probably is. I haven't gotten that far yet. Like a white grape. Um, and by the way, we're taking these in order of how I typically fill out a form because I'll start with the appearance, is what I can see. I'll take a quick aroma snip as I'm doing this because I want to get some idea of what's going on. I am not one that shoves his nose into a beer immediately after being poured, especially lagers. And the reason for that is really quite simple. If it were served to you at a bar, it would have time to gas out by the time you've got it. You probably wouldn't smell some of those earliest esters anyway, and if they don't persist, they're usually not a fault. So any of those kinds of sulfurs and esters and things that persist may or may not be a fault but I'm not worried about the ones that come immediately out of the bottle. If anything, in lagers, they typically mean it should have a little more lagering time, and there's probably plenty of other uh, indications of that if it's actually true. Just, you know, if it's served to you, usually you don't grab it right away and sniff it, you kind of look at it for a little bit. So I go from appearance to aroma, The first thing I will taste and taste, go for and taste, is actually mouthfeel. Because it gives you a couple of things. One, mouthfeel is pretty easy to deal with right up front. Um, it's your first impression of the mouthfeel. Um, and it gives me a chance, gives the beer a chance for aftertaste to creep up, which kind of tells me a little bit more about the beer. So let's talk about the mouthfeel of this beer. What are you guys getting out of it? I heard astringents earlier. <coughs> Do you feel that that's a grain astringence or a hop astringence or what kind of astringence? I think it's a stealing of the hops. How does the body feel? Mm -hmm. body yeah, the body does. Yeah, medium, medium body. It's got like a medium. It's not like a heavy mm -hmm. it's not, not like light, and then it's not creamy either, it's just sort of... So creaminess is low, which would go into mouthfeel. Um, there's mild astringence in the finish, perhaps, and I actually attribute that to hop. Um, Flavor-wise, hop, uh, well, body-wise, rather, it's kind of medium. Flavor-wise, now that I can have it in the aftertaste, it's definitely got a solid grapefruit in the aftertaste. It's got a uh, lingering bitter finish. 
lingering bitter finish. <clears throat> but it's a clean bitterness. It's not cloying bitterness. Um, Flavor-wise, I'm getting a little bit of toasty malt. I'm getting um, more of that um, kind of a, a winey grapiness to it, which is giving me the impression of a thinner body than I think is actually there. Just because I think this is probably an old example. Okay. Hey, Kevin. Yeah. How do you uh, compensate for the fact that you've been we've been swirling around for a while, carbonation is dissipating? You know, I mean, like when I was finishing it up, actually, you know, my first couple of tastes were actually pretty low carbonation, just because I had been swirling around for the aroma so long. So, you know, how do you even get the mouthfeel of the carbonation if you're just letting it dissipate? Well, for a couple minutes? I don't swirl it too much for that first aromatic compression. I'm generally kind of holding it up like this. I'm letting stuff build up at the top. You can cover the top too, and captures some of that huh, aromatic. Just make sure that you haven't washed the floral soap or have really dirty hands. Yes? How would you explain that taste that I got on either side of my tongue that gives me that dry taste like biting into a young persimmon? That says And in this case, I think it's partially hop astringents. Um, the body is thinner than I think it ought to be. I think that there's a growing sourness in that particular beer. Um, it's just, you know, I've had this beer before and it's usually a little bit, there's a little more oomph to it, there's more backbone to it. There's, yeah. The malt backbone seems kind of thin to me here. Um, it hasn't completely gone, but it's going. Um, okay, so I am, you know, I when I wash my hands, during competition, as you inevitably do, I try, without it sounding gross, I use a minimal amount of soap, to no soap at all, depending upon the situation, um, and generate a lot of water to try to get rid of it. Um, I don't want that floral scent on there because it just permeates everything. Um, so I'm not, I'm not swirling this in such a way that I'm trying to create a vortex and degas it. I'm letting the beer just kind of act it its own way. And after a while, you just kind of learn to compensate for it as you go. Uh, there's a lot of judges that will completely change their opinion on a beer after it's degassed and warmed up. All sorts of flaws and things will show up. But it doesn't mean that it was a flawed beer to start, because as presented as a normal beer, we all thought it was perfectly acceptable. Uh, but such is the nature of judging. Okay, moving over to uh, the Anderson Valley. We went through appearance already. What are you getting out of the aroma? I'm getting more fruit out of the aroma. Mm -hmm. This one, floral. Floral. I heard floral. Mm -hmm. I heard fruit. Where is that coming from? Is it a, is it a malt base, a yeast base, or a hop base? Hops. Hops. This is definitely a, a well dry hop beer, uh, or very good late hop. It's hard to know the difference sometimes. Um, there's a toasty malt, in it, malt to this. There's a bigger malt backbone in there, I think, than the uh, definitely than the other beer. Uh, but it's standing up to the hop, and it is adding a slight fruitiness because that's coming from the pale malt. Excuse me, the fruitiness is coming from the pale malt? From the pale malt, in this case, if not how yeast-based. In the flavor or the aroma? In the aroma. Taste the green. How, how do you make that determination between the yeast and the uh, malt? Uh, 
Um, toasted, <coughs> malts like, toasted malts like Victory Malt, uh, Munich Malt, that kind of thing, and, and even um, various manufacturers of pale malt, when, like Great Western is, is notorious for this, when the uh, extract kind of is done, if you have an extremely neutral yeast, you'll still pick up some fruitiness, and it's entirely based in, in the grain. And I guess the best example of that is to go over and smell an empty container of malt extract. It's extraordinarily fruity, yet it's never fermented. It's, but that's a very, very concentrated aromatic of pale malt. This one, I'm not getting any yeast aromatics at all. When I'm looking for yeast aromatics, I'm <coughs> going to be looking for things like uh, tropical fruits. I'm going to be looking for peaches. Uh, I'm going to be looking for plums. Uh, I'm going to be looking for raisins, that kind of thing, depending upon the beer style. Those tend to be yeast signatures, big time. I was thinking more like brandy, like there can be, yeah. That's what I meant. There can be brandy toastiness in there. But I'm not, I'm, basically I'm getting all malted hops. I think the yeast is extremely neutral in this particular beer. So, mouthfeel. What are we getting compared to the other one in terms of uh, body? Much more. Much more, yeah. Pretty good uh, malt backbone. What does that do for the hop? The hop isn't so just kind of laying there on your tongue. It's not laying there on the back of your throat. It's not quite so obvious. And so the linger, the finish in this seems drier, seems uh, more controlled and more balanced and less all about the hop uh, to me. Flavors. Once again, a lot of pale malt. I think this is almost 100% pale malt. I think it actually is 100% pale malt based on color alone. Um, so I'm not getting any caramel flavors. I'm not getting any toasty flavors. I'm not getting anything like that. I'm just getting pure pale malt. Pretty neutral. Yeah, it's like yeah. There's a real slight astringent finish, though, just right at the very end of it. It can be a hot bitterness. It can also be part of carbonation. It tastes more tannin. Mm -hmm. But it's probably not a malt-based tannin. This doesn't have that. There's a when when there's a real strong hop-based tannin, it's a hop-based. I'm sorry. When there's a real strong malt-based tannin, it's really obvious. It it tastes grainy and it generally has a chewing on uh, malt husks sort of a flavor to it, uh, or kind of a feeling to it. Um, this is more of a hop astringence, um, because it's going right along with the, uh, uh, with the grassiness of the hop and the flavor. And Cascade hops, because of that, that uh, grapefruitiness to them, can also kind of give the impression of uh, Astringents, mostly because we're conditioned to accept that in grapefruit. Not necessarily always because it's there. So we bring to the table some of our preconceptions about what flavors ought to do to our mouth. 
Okay. Questions? That's American Pale Ale. That kind of shows the, the style. Read the style guidelines and it says hop aroma evident. Notice that that's nowhere near what an IPA ought to be. Started, believe it or not, was actually developed by um, 
UC Davis has a microbrewery answer to the idea of having something pale, something dark, and something in between. So, okay. So let's pass those around. So we're we'll we'll toasting this in the middle. Um, toasty, nutty. Yeah. Real subtle toast. So they sold it to a lot of the clubs as being kind of, kind of that interesting to introduce people to uh, to making to getting into uh, microbrew beers, and invariably they were on the sweet side for a long time. It has been in the last five years that they have moved away. From this sweet from the sweet side of the Anderson to the hoppier side of what's coming around now, which is the Red Seal. Red Seal Ale from North Coast Road. Okay? So there's a dramatic contrast here in the hopping. Uh, Anderson Valley built the company on making their amber ale. So much so that when the market changed, they were so geared towards this that they've had a hard time re-gearing towards other beers. Um, the market for amber ales has almost disappeared. Amber ales have started to migrate towards simply deeper colored IPAs or deeper colored American uh, pale ales. Um, something this color would still be easily considered pale. You're seeing the commercial varieties. How about the uh, BJCP style guidelines? They still yeah. Do they migrate? They, have they haven't moved at all, have they? Oh yeah. We, the the guidelines get kind of rewritten about every four years. Well, uh, how come they don't like any hopper room in, in the? Uh, <laughs> because the style still basically says that. <laughs> and if you smell both of these, one of them has a much more caramel note to it. The Anderson Valley has a lot more caramel to it. A lot more to that toasted almond I was telling you that you would expect. Um, it's got, and neither one of them has any real overt uh, hop aroma, although you get more of it out of the Red Seal. But it's not overt in the same way that a uh, that, that the uh, Green Flash Pale Ale was, or yeah. The, one of the pale elements. Coleco. Coleco, yeah, it was. So, <laughs> yeah. I would say really subdued hop aroma in both cases. And in, in neither case do I think this is much of a real late hop addition, so much as it's just kind of there from mid to mid late. Something about, yeah. I think the hop aroma does stand out, though, in the Red Seal. Oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. But would you notice it if you were just smelling it by itself? Yeah, it does definitely um, stand out in the Red Sea more so than, I don't think there's any in the uh, Anderson Valley. So, this is a, uh, a style that is in transition, uh, a lot in transition, and um, is one that's probably up for a major rewrite. But um, the factors that influence the style guidelines is homebrewers' willingness to make it and commercial examples that are typically nationally available. Okay.
uh, how prevalent it is in the marketplace and how much homebrewers actually want to make it. It seems to me like the, uh, the uh, boot is closer to like a British style uh, ESB than the full sale is to a, a Sierra Nevada. Yeah, there's But I still accept what you're saying in terms of, especially the malt profile. I think that's uh, a good valid point. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's just a contrast in how these styles work. Certainly the method. Yeah, there's some. Uh, yeah, I think there's maybe like five percent. There's hop in there. There's a lot of fresh I could be convinced that the boot is, is an English style In both cases, though, do you guys pick up the fact that it's American hops being used? Yeah. You guys are really getting that kind of citrusy note out of it? Oh, yeah. As opposed to any sort of English characteristic? So if you were to judge this along strict BJCP guidelines, would you deem the red seal as being too bitter for style? Um, or at the very least put it on the high end of the category? Offhand, in terms of how I am dealing with, uh, you know, tasting these now, I might say that it's a little heavy-handed in terms of um, pop, but if it's light enough in the flight, eight, nine years later, it may not seem so hoppy. If you can preserve your sample of that red seal and taste it again after we try some IPAs, I think you will find that it has a remarkably sweet flavor by comparison. And that will be entirely due to your palate drifting. Did you say that the hops are the first one? Yes. I said I find the most frustrating. Red Seal Choice is a red seal. Yeah, because we have a red seal. So is this, where do you go? Which one is this? 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 Well, something for you guys. It's not on the menu. Yeah, we got a lot. Gonna try this beer here real quick. This is uh, Cooper's Australian Sparkling Ale. This is different than a pale ale, or different than. Uh, um, it's not an American pale ale at all. Not even trying to be. However, this is as popular a style in Australia 
as our American pale ales are here. And first thing I'll tell you is, is that the color is slightly browned from oxidation, and that is because we get our Cooper's Australian by way of London, which ironically is how they get their Sierra Nevada. Australia? Australia, no, Australia gets their Sierra Nevada by way of London. The thing about this style is, is it has a lot of similarities to American Pale Ale in that it's 100% pale malt typically. It is uh, mildly hot or moderately hot. Is that fuseless in the nose? It's esters. We're getting a lot of esters in here. And when fresh, has a distinctly um, red apple. Light apple sort of aromatic to it, which is still here. Slight cidery nose to it, but that's acceptable in this particular beer. It's very, uh, it's a yeast-driven beer, and when fresh, it's really very nice and very refreshing, and has everything, uh, a lot of things in common with American Pale Ale in terms of being refreshing, um, balanced. And uh, worth drinking. Yeah, it's kind of cider. I don't think it has a chance again. Yeah, that's the apple note that's kind of dying down a little bit. And this is a slightly oxidized version because usually it's a very bright uh, straw color, gold color. That's not so there's no fusels in this because it's fermented this is fairly cold and uh, it only gets like five percent yeah we're getting more grains there's a definite graininess to it no granny smith oh granny smith yeah there's a graininess to it yeah it has died down it's not as ripe apple as you would hope but that's kind of how it ends up once it gets here Yeah. 
This is 100% Maris Otter and uh, English Crystal Malts and English uh, Cake Holdings and uh, I, don't, I don't think any other hop except Cake Holdings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is the one that used to be called uh, Ballard Bitter. Except it's been slightly um, reformulated. It's more balanced and cleaner than the Bell. Yeah, and it's also lighter in color. Yeah. I mean, are these in the same category? Yeah, they were both considered English. I mean, you can't even taste the other beer after you've. Palette drift partly. It's also uh, carryover flavors, but the. Uh, the important thing is, is that the Sam Smith's came yeah. us all the way from England. This stuff just came yeah. from Washington. It's a clear idea of what happens when a beer is really fresh. Um, it, it's a clear idea of what happens when um, the beers are, are made locally and drank locally. Um, is that what you think the Anderson Valley just turned so much fresher? Yeah, but Green Flash is doing a pretty good job of importing the beer to, to here. They're not far away either, so. So these are obviously two different beers. So what do you, what do you, how do you perceive the freshness? Um, I mean, a different, you know, different interpretation. Stronger, better malt, malt backbone, fewer of the uh, faded flavors of oxidation in terms of the. So you're getting oxidation. Um, certainly no spoilage, um, like the butyric acid is, is showing us. Um, Certainly, um, the flavors are cleaner. Uh, oxidation in the earliest stages, to me, is like looking at things through a dirty window or kissing through a screen door. You know, all the parts are there, you just can't quite get to it. Um, it's like a peep show. It's strange enough. I'm going to use that as such a sheet. Before I die, sometime. <laughs> I think you know. The minister's daughter and yes. kissing through a screen door. I think you know from a from personal experience that there are things you'll write on a sheet that you will that that uh, are different than you might actually express them speaking. Um, you know, there are things I'll I'll say and talk about with a uh, another judge that I would never actually write on a sheet. Nice attempt at style. Is that just a good attempt at a difficult style? Yeah. yeah that's a cop out line. I've seen that on pale ale. Good attempt at a difficult style. No. Well, what are you supposed to say? I spit it out. <laughs> Better luck next time. You can end up saying drinkability could be better. You can end up saying things like, um, you know, this is not something I can finish. If it's really got a bad problem or something, do it just give the feedback as to what they can do to improve it. Yeah, I think your neighbors love it. That's why I had You can say that, but you can't. Beer, you have yeah, unlike wine taste, unlike wine judges, we cannot fail a beer on aroma alone unless it's in, say, a best of show situation. Oh. Um, we have to taste the beer. We have to judge the beer. Well, we're kind of getting the chest with that score of 10. Yeah. <laughs>
don't have to say much after that. Have you seen my sheets? Do you mean gushers? There are, yeah, it, well, if you can, you, it is okay, though, to, to you start writing stuff down on a, on a gusher, and you can simply write at the bottom, and this is not enough left to sample. You open the top. Sorry, beer ran off. That's good. And that's exactly what you can write in there. It's not enough left to sample. Now, I thought you told me when I was diverting one time that you can't actually refuse to taste a beer if you think there's, like, something... If you really think it's adulterated... Okay, well, this is that's a different question than what Rochelle was asking. Rochelle was asking, are there circumstances where it smells like a dirty boot kind of thing? And Okay. If there is, if you actually think somebody's adulterated a beer, they put nail polish remover in that beer, and you get that, and you you smell that, and it's you smell something that you know just isn't right, um, something that is not a flavor that would ever be described or found in a beer that, that smells like a poison. You can say, I won't taste that. It is rare that that's ever going to happen to basically never. Um, because I found out in basically 20, 10, 15 years of judging, 20 years of brewing, people don't adulterate the beers. They will intentionally enter bad beers because they want the feedback on what went wrong. They can't solve it themselves. Well, no, Kevin, I don't think you realize what I was talking about. When I mentioned, like, smells like this marker, that pretty much is a toxic substance. <laughs> 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 Thanks for having my back there. <laughs> okay. You know, Kevin, I can do with the judges first to begin with. It might be different. Okay. Yeah, We're gonna move on. More English beer. We're gonna move on to American IPA. Just remember, there are no pathogens that can survive in beer. Provided that Sam Adams is better. Sam English IPA. Sam Smith tasted a lot better than it smelled. Yeah, I mean, it had a good malt flavor. Yeah, that'll lie. And I can't smell much anyway. Aroma, I don't know. My whole factory senses went long ago. Have you tried that Bravo one? Yeah, I went to the Bravo one. I tried a lot of them. It's not very good hot. Did you get garlic? When I had them, they're all like real green. Like this. All right. So they might be different. Like. American IPA coming around right now. And this is Green Flash IPA. Green Flash IPA. And note the comparison between this and the English IPA. Yeah, we love this. Oh, and that's good. Oh, that's right. Now, has anybody ever made? What? How many people here make IPA, American style IPA? Okay. 
Have you guys ever let your IPA just kind of, um, some of these may be hazy because they think they're bottle conditioned. I don't think that they come this way. Yeah, I got a bottle. Not mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got the Would you get that clarity yeah. less yeah. than good? I would just fair. say, um, fair, clear. No, no, I'd say moderate to severe haze. For style. Okay. My rye IPA wasn't this hazy, actually. Rye IPA actually dropped crystal clear. Well, yeah, this is bottle conditions, and depending on how they're poured, um, and no offense to my the people pours, but when you are pouring, you want to keep that that class level. And you want to go from bottle, uh, sorry, for, you want to keep the bottle level and go from glass to glass without tilting it up. Every time you tilt it up or jerk it, you're swishing up the sediment for that. If you want to just pour it, and you want to pour every beer the same way all through the flight. typically straight down the Here, let me help you with that question. Uh, I toss this in there. 
look to my posture. There's a different way in which I'll approach somebody's beer. Second thing, I'll drink my spears for pleasure. When if he hands me a Hefeweizen, I'll just get spine of it. And just enjoy the hell out of it. Uh, hands me one of his panels, I'll enjoy the hell out of it. If he wants me to be critical about it, I approach it entirely different. Um, and I'm, I, I no longer worry about it. I, I don't... I never try to be rude, really but I don't feel like punching. If I yeah. find something, it's like, whether you agree with me or not, yeah, there's the whole aspect of it. Yeah, I've had this one in the house. It's not like this up here. That's only going to happen if you are as critical and as. Yes. Correct. So, based on the guidelines, based on philosophy, we are well into the territory of what our what, uh, what our West Coast palate likes a lot. So, contrast these two beers for me. Which two beers? Stone IPA and the Green Flash IPA. Would you ding? Would you ding them both for not having the proper room? Sure, if you want. I don't think I don't agree with you, but oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I give you a few questions. The second one, green slash that huge. Maybe for you, yeah. Give the taste. Is there any question? Yeah, it's much longer beer. Yeah, it's sweet. No, no, it's still. That's because it compares to the other. Comparing to others, not just any two. Do you have a spot? More towards the. I'm sorry. More towards the bittering. Hot in the flavor. In which one? Hot in the stone. So you get more bittering hop? More, a little more bittering hop in the flavor, as opposed to, not necessarily the green, but like the Racer 5, which would have a much stronger citrusy flavor. Sure. Um, yeah, there's a lot of different approaches to it. The Green Flash, I think, has... I think the Green Flash has a more aggressive hoppiness to it. And I think that the, uh, the Stone has a more pleasant hoppiness to it. Um, a nicer, smoother one. And it, Tends to accent the malt backbone, which, by comparison, comes off as sweet. You can actually taste the malt. Yeah. Yeah. I would, uh, I think I would step back and say, "Geez, quite a taste of those in the opposite order." Sure, but in competition, you don't have experience. that. You don't have that right, uh, but, choice. But you have to go back and, and you have to look at it that way. So, yes, oh, you do. Well, when I judge, I oftentimes, if I have a good calibration beer, I have a good beer to start with. I'll keep that one aside, and I'll go back to it, and I will taste it as I go. And if it becomes sweet halfway through a panel of IPAs, I know it's my palate that's drifted, not the beers. Okay, what do you do about it? So you, 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 you really work hard. The question was, what do I do about it? You work hard to clean the palate with bread and water. Yeah. You may so take a little bit of a break if you have to, but this mostly you kind of say, all right, if I'm getting a little bit of hop in that, and I've got a little bit of hop in this other one, it must be pretty aggressively hot, and I just adjust my writing. Awesome. That's what he said. He does that. That's not typically how they use kinder when it's used for some kind of thing. Not surprised. They enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. So you can. Most people just drink it. You're right. You get one you like, and you just hold on to it and taste all the other IPs. In fact, that was so you know, one interesting thing, Green Flash calls this a West Coast IPA. There has been, up until about the last two or three years, a dramatic difference 
in what's considered an American pale ale and what and what's considered an American IPA in East Coast versus West Coast. <coughs> and that is um, just a matter of the fact that they like their beers maltier. It's a slightly colder area to live, especially in the winter, and um, they enjoy their warmer, more alcoholic, maltier beers in the uh, East Coast. Also, happens to be what the local breweries were producing and what they were buying. Here, we're close to the hop growing regions. We have people that want to play with hops. We developed into an entirely different style. And there was a period of time where there was a thought of splitting these categories into East Coast, West Coast. Um, I think with the advent of people like Sam Caglione and um, what's going on at Berkham Brewery and several other places, they know what to do with their hops. Um, things are becoming a lot more homogenous. There are more multi-examples available on the West Coast than there used to be, and there's a lot more hoppy of, uh, stuff available on the East Coast than there used to be. So things are, I think, gaining equilibrium. Okay, double IPAs. Trying to speed through these. Really, I am. Speed through these. I do, have, I do have another beer that's not on the menu, but because of time, I'm going to kind of uh, skip it. I have a rye IPA, if it's very much the case of that. Right, so that gives you a switch rye they're not really. And notice I'm calling them double IPA. And what are they called in the style guideline? Imperial. Yeah, there's absolutely nothing imperial about them. They have absolutely no monarchical heritage whatsoever. They are American imperialist IPAs. Well, okay. So you, just right. you don't draw a distinction between a double IPA and an imperial IPA? <laughs> That's the same thing. I disagree. I mean, in my own life, a double IPA is actually additional hops. I never learned them any different. I never, I mean, doubling up pops or anything else just seemed kind of like um, it was just a thing to do. But you talk to, uh, you talk to Vinny, who has acknowledged as being at least one of the people that invented the style, if not the person that invented the style, with Brian Kidd. And uh, then finally, the this is um, this is Green Flash Imperial IPA, Imperialist IPA, and then we have uh, Stone Ruination coming up. Yeah, but I just I I've run my own distinction between ones that are fair hoppy but don't have any that is that beer but more so that materials increasing alcohol. So say they're still around seven eight percent, a lot hoppier. I hope as opposed to ones that jump up to ten plus. Well, there's the first one coming around. 
Imperial. 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 Imperial.
as there ought to be. They're spacing out the hops further. I've found that you get smoother maltiness if you start adding hops uh, a lot more frequently along the way. Um, yeah, I make a double IPA with two ounces of hops every 10 minutes for a 90-minute boil. I mean, there's so many hops in there that I have to decant it out of the, I can whirlpool it, I decant it out of there into a six and a half gallon bucket, let that settle, and then a rack off of that. Okay, and then I still end up, that's the only beer that I actually filter, because I still have so much hop debris, even at the end of filtering. Do you think filtering, you lose any of that? No, I of course filter, I'm just trying to get rid of the hops. Yeah, just like, but I actually end up in the, when it goes Floaters. to the keg, when it goes into the keg, and it, you know, sits in the inches in the keg, I actually have to remove the poppet in both the uh, body connector and the uh, connector that goes on it in order for it to flow or all that stuff gets caught all around it. Um, yeah, it's absurd. And it's just an absurd amount of hops. And uh, coming from Vinny's lips to, to your ears, Vinny says that the early hop additions, the first 10 minutes, don't matter. Any high alpha hop will do. Because all you're getting is bittering out of That's it. That's it. Um, he is on record as saying that he uses a hop isomer extract for the first uh, 15 minutes worth of additions. Simply because if he used actual hops, he would lose so much volume in that that he would actually lose money on each batch. What's a, what's a high alpha isomer hop? High alpha hop? Like no, magnums? He uses extracts. But he's using a, an isomerized extract that he helped design. He has a company making it for Columbus, Magnum, Antim, Admirals. Doesn't matter. This is my
It's got to be the graph. Do you see the graph? Usually it's a matter 